Good afternoon, and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU News Director Will Murphy, filling in for Herald Times Editor Bob Zaltzberg, and also filling in for Mary Catherine Carmichael, who is away from uh, the microphone this afternoon. We have two guests today. Our topic, in broad terms, is breast cancer and the efforts to combat it, deal with it, address it. And our two guests include Dr. Monet Bowling. Dr. Bowling received her medical degree from Indiana University in 2001. She began her residency in Atlanta, Georgia, before returning to Indiana in 2003 to finish up at IU. After graduating from her residency program, Dr. Bowling did her breast fellowship through the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation Fellowship in Dallas. And she's once again returned to Indiana to treat the whole patient and family and not just their disease. And I'm sure we'll get into that whole line of questioning as uh, the program continues. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. And also in the studio with us is Janice Ross. She has uh, been uh, oncology certified since 1988 and has served as a cancer nurse for more than, she tells me, 20. she's on her 27th year. And she is a cancer survivor herself. She manages the uh, Olcott Center for Cancer Education, providing support and education for patients and their families. So welcome to you as well, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. If you'd like to join the program in the course of this afternoon and this hour, please feel free to give us a call. The number is 855-0811 in Bloomington. Toll-free outside the Bloomington area, you can call 877-285-9348. And if you'd like to drop a comment or question via email, the address is noon at indiana.edu. Now, I sort of like to start off these programs just by finding out how people got into the fields that they're pursuing and investigating. So let's begin with you, Dr. Bowling. How did you get into this line of specialty in medicine? Um, I began my training at Indiana University and as a medical student, and my mentor was a breast surgeon. It's Dr. Robert Goulet at IU um, Indianapolis, and he has always had a strong interest in taking care of the entire patient um, and their families and instilled in me about caring for patient, caring for their disease process, but making sure that their whole family was taken care of. And um, it was through that interest in rotating with him several several times throughout the my um, training that I developed an interest in breast cancer. Um, I've always loved taking care of the patients, and I think it takes a special kind of surgeon to take care of breast cancer patients. Um, it's more than the technical aspects of doing the surgery, which is, you know, for any surgeon, anyone can operate and, and perform the procedure. But the start of taking care of the breast cancer patient happens way before you do the surgery, and the care of them happens actually for a lifetime. Um, it is become my pleasure of taking care of patients and caring for them and their families uh, that I met when I was a medical student. And I've seen them back years and years to come. And I can will continue to see them and their families in the future. It's got to be a very gratifying part of your practice. It's very rewarding um, knowing that you are helping a family or educating people or making sure that you dispel some of the rumors and the fears that people develop over time. It makes you feel that you're putting your medical degree to good use. Now, are you uh, strictly in practice? Are you in research? Are you, uh, I don't know what your portfolio is right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, I just finished my fellowship uh, three months ago. Um, I trained at UT Southwestern in Dallas, and I am currently um, a assistant professor of surgery at IU um, Indianapolis and covering three hospitals, um, Wishard Hospital, Indiana University um, downtown, and Clarion North. Um, but my interests are, are in research and cl- clinical um, pursuits. So I do surgery probably probably about 80% of my time and then research about 20% of the time. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Janice, what's your story? How did you get into this line of work 27 years ago? Well, I think like most people, my family was affected by cancer. I lost a few relatives when I was a small child, and as I entered nursing, it just seemed like a natural area for me to go to. And I have been an oncology nurse now, going on my 27th year. And um, this is a group of people that are very easy to take care of, and it's really an honor to take care of people when they are facing a chronic illness, possibly life-threatening. And I often tell my friends, I've got the best job in the world, Uh, working at the Alcott Center, being able to sit and talk with people who are newly diagnosed, or perhaps they have a recurrence or a change in their treatment plan, 
and being able to sit down with them and talk with them and help them through this process. I would think a lot of folks would find that surprising. I mean, you think of dealing with cancer in all its manifestations and breast cancer being one of those, just how daunting it must be with people who are oftentimes very terrified. I think the one thing that is very unique to breast cancer patients that you don't see in a lot of places is that women tend to rally when they get their diagnosis. There are some times that they feel kind of that initial shock of why me? Why did this happen to me? Um, I did everything right. I ate correctly. I exercised. I got my mammogram. So why did this happen to me? But after they come to terms with the diagnosis and what they need to do next, they become very determined in in taking care of themselves and the next step and what do I do? How do I educate my family? How do I get my sisters to get all their mammograms? How Was this missed? Did I make a mistake? I mean, people become very activated and that happens for me exclusively with breast cancer patients. I just find that these are the most determined women and men um, that I've ever met that become very interested in their care and education and in research and want to be involved in all aspects of finding a cure. Hmm. Is that also your experience, Janice? It really is, and we know that cancer affects more than just the individual. It affects the entire family. And women are often the health care, we call them administrators, <laughs> within their own family. And they're the ones who are the ones who are encouraging other members of their family to go out and get routine treatments, also routine screenings, routine physicals that are important for everyone. Before we get too uh, much further in the program, we probably should mention a couple of events that are going on uh, in our listening area uh, tomorrow. So maybe, Janice, you can tell us a little bit. There's something going on in Bloomington and also something in Terre Haute tomorrow. Right. We have two events that people can become involved in. Locally here in Bloomington, there is the Breast Cancer Awareness Walk, which is put on its – was started um, a grassroots effort by some cancer survivors, and it continues year after year because of survivors putting this on to increase awareness here in our community for women to get their mammograms done, for women to do self-exams so they can recognize if there's any kind of change in their breasts. Uh, that event is going to be going on tomorrow. I believe it starts at 8 o'clock over at City Hall. And I know last year we had over 800 people who attended uh, there is no fee to be a part of this walk, but donations are accepted um, to the committee. And it's just a nice social event where we have families, we have strollers, dogs, uh, a lot of people from the community that come out to support this. And there is a time where they recognize survivors, local survivors. Also tomorrow over in Terre Haute is the Susan G. Komen Race for the Cure. This is an event that is in its 11th year now. Um, they have raised so far in 10 years a million dollars. Seventy-five percent of that goes to grants within their local area. And their local affiliate um, provides grants for both Owen and Monroe County. So we do have women and men in our community that benefit from this race, which is different than the Indianapolis affiliate that stays mainly in the Indianapolis area. So people who do want to be involved in one of these larger races, Terre Haute's the place to go to <laughs> for the money to come back to the local community. And we have received um, three different grants in the local area from the Susan G. Komen Foundation. Do you have a time by any chance for the race tomorrow? Registration tomorrow is at 8.30. Then the one-mile fun run and walk starts at 10 o'clock. And then the 5K race starts at 10.30. Okay. Is there a, a website or something we could direct folks to or some way of getting information if they want to find out something about it? Right. If they want to find out about the Race for the Cure tomorrow, they can log in at www.comanwabashvalley.org. Okay. And we might want to get back to, the, to that uh, address before the end of the program to remind folks. Thank you for that. Now, you mentioned that uh, 75% of, of the money generated uh, manifests itself as grants to help uh, that area. Uh, what about IU's involvement? I would assume that when uh, there's a Coleman event in Indianapolis that that helps fund the kind of research and work that, uh, that you do up in Indianapolis. Actually, it does on, on mul multiple levels. Um, IU has recently been the recipient of a very large <laughs> multi-million dollar Coleman grant. Um, looking at it's the Friends for Life project that happens in Indianapolis and that is actually um, a database collection of tissue from uh, women that are patients that have no cancer that are quote unquote normal um, 
women, normal patients, and then um, specimens or of patients who do have breast cancer. Um, and the beginnings of this effort are actually um, looking at what is a normal breast um, because we know what a diseased breast is, what a cancerous breast looks like or a breast that's at risk for developing cancer. What, um, where the research is necessary is what is normal. Um, do you have people that start off that there, there's nothing that happens to their breast and how do you develop into someone who's at high risk for the development of cancer? So we are making efforts to biopsy women and find out um, if if we can design a model for finding a normal patient, looking at their gene arrays, looking at the proteomics, looking at uh, their specimen, their tissue, and um, being able to assess risk or find out where where the breast would start and what we would call a normal a normal patient. And all of that is being funded by the Komen Foundation and um, has been a huge effort and an, uh, an opportunity to research areas that have never been touched upon before. No one has ever focused on where where things start in terms of breast cancer. Do you have a normal patient? Is there such thing as a normal breast? And so I think that in thinking of the cascade of the development of cancer, we kind of explain to patients that, you know, you have a normal breast, you have an abnormal change or atypia, and then you have early cancer, which we call in situ cancer and infiltrating cancer. Um, but we've never defined what normal was. And so in that effort to define that, I think that you find areas that you can stop the cascade of the development of cancer. So if we can figure out what is normal and we know what's cancer, how do you block the, the step from normal to, to cancer? How do you compile that database? I mean, where do you get the... The, st the samples from? Um, actually, these have all been by volunteers, which has been one of the largest efforts. Um, and I will let Janice uh, comment on some of these things, but has been one of the largest efforts. I know during uh, different po set points throughout the year um, and at the race in Indianapolis, the Susan G. Komen race in Indianapolis, biopsy specimens are taken from volunteers. And this was, again, something I was saying about people wanting to be involved and becoming very activated in, in research and in, in care. Um, you find women that are very interested in finding a cure. And so in doing that, it, it's very important to find out what is normal. Um, and so we have volunteers that come by and have biopsies performed, which is that couldn't be performed unless volunteers were available. So it's excellent. And locally, we have had about 40 women in our community who have donated blood specifically for the Friends for Life project. Most of them have been employees of Bloomington Hospital through the Regional Cancer Institute. So it's really nice that we have local people who are also being a part of this program. And the blood donation is sufficient in terms of a tissue sample for this information? It, it actually has started out um, as kind of a – it actually started out with saliva, blood, <laughs> tissue donation has become a newer um, – adjunct to that in terms of collecting tissue. So what we're doing is comparing DNA from blood specimens, from tissue specimens, and looking at proteins, looking at genes, looking at DNA, and comparing that to what we know about patients that have developed cancer. And um, one of the ultimate goals in doing that, um, people's risks are assessed by different models. Um, there's one model that's called the Gale model. There's also the Klaus model. Enable to, it enables doctors to be able to assess someone's risk for the development of cancer. Um, but those models have all been short in being ex exclusionary. Not every race was included when those initial studies were done, not every age group. So there are some shortcomings to that. So what we're doing with Friends for Life is being more inclusionary, getting all races that we can find, and also broadening the age base um, so that we can have a, a larger group and then possibly develop a new model that would be able to be applied to women around the world. Is it possible for someone who's uh, interested in this locally to, to stop by the Olcott Center and just volunteer to give tissue? I mean, what do they do? Right now, I know that the study is not taking any more blood samples from our local area. I'm not sure if they're, if they're taking any more in Indianapolis at this time. There, there will be, um, and what I can do is send that information down so that it can be advertised, but there are points in time that we actually have tissue collections that will actually happen. So if volunteers are interested, I don't have those dates in front of me, but there are dates that people can actually donate tissue if they're interested in doing so. Absolutely. Okay. All right. I want to remind uh, any listeners who may have been uh, uh, joining us late this afternoon that we have two guests in the studio, Dr. Monet Bowling 
and uh, also Janice Ross, who's uh, with Bloomington's uh, Olcott Center. And we're talking about breast cancer. If you'd like to join the uh, conversation, the number in Bloomington is 855-0811. Toll free, outside the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. Or if you'd like, you can send us an email, and that address is noon at indiana.org. Edu. Let's take a moment to talk uh, a little bit about numbers. How prevalent is uh, the incidence of breast cancer in America? How many women uh, and men uh, does it affect on an annual basis? So by the American Cancer Society um, booklet that is put out and, and the numbers for the development of breast cancer, it, the numbers are about 200,000 um, patients per year will be newly diagnosed with with breast cancer. Of that 200,000, 1% of those people are actually men that are diagnosed with breast cancer. And one thing that I will stress to everyone that's listening, um, the importance of knowing that breast cancer does not only affect women, that it actually does affect men, and um, that it's very important that men if they have a diagnosis of breast cancer in their family, that they are aware that that's a risk factor for development of cancer. Um, and in terms of, Janice, did you want to add anything about the, the numbers, the lifetime risk? And this becomes very important because the numbers that we usually give people is about one in eight lifetime risk for the development of cancer. So if you have eight women in a room, one of those women will be affected with the development of breast cancer. And that's a lifetime risk. And I think that's where some people become very confused um, in thinking that breast cancer kind of happens more commonly, most commonly, after the age of 50 or kind of in that perimenopausal, postmenopausal area. And they think that that is the only, you know, during that finite amount of time is when you're at a one in eight risk. And it's actually a lifetime risk number. So 13%. Of, of women at a one in eight lifetime risk for the development of breast cancer. In fact, Susan Coleman, right, is not one of those sort of quote unquote prototypical uh, perimenopausal women that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Susan was probably about 32 years old at the time that she was diagnosed with her cancer. Well, we do have a, a caller on the line, so let's uh, go and talk with uh, Sandy. Go ahead. Hi, this is uh, Andy. Oh, I'm sorry, Andy. Hello. Okay. Uh, this is uh, more of a question uh, that I think uh, uh, one of your guests just answered for me. Uh, my wife is going to be turning uh, uh, 40 in November, and uh, other than just a, a regular uh, routine uh, uh, examination, has never had a mammogram. And uh, what my question was, when should she start? Should she be doing it? Should she already have been doing it? I, I can take that one Okay. <laughs> immediately. <laughs> she can start her mammograms at the age of 40. Um, and just a few statistics about mammograms just so that people understand the the – uh, radiology societies and kind of every breast society has come to the consensus that all mammograms for women should happen starting at the age of 40. That is highlighted if there is no young development of cancer in their family. And what I mean by that is that as long as your wife doesn't have a premenopausal woman who has developed cancer in her family age of 40 or lower, um, she's you would send someone to get their mammogram at the age of 40. Um, but if you have someone who had a mother that developed breast cancer at the age of 36 or 32, you would subtract 10 years from that date, and that's actually when that person should start to be examined by a um, by a medical professional and also should be seen for either ultrasounds, mammograms, or some type of follow-up because that person would then be at risk for the development of cancer at an earlier age. So they need to be screened earlier. So for all women, 40 is definitely the age that you would begin unless you have an early onset cancer in your family. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Anything to add to that, Janice? I just think it's great that we've got a man calling in concerned about his wife <laughs> and her health. So, Andy, go out there and let your wife know it's time to schedule that mammogram. Well, that, that almost brings us to the to, to uh, one of the points that we started off this program with, which is uh, both of you uh, advocating for a whole family treatment uh, to this situation. What exactly does that mean? Well, here locally, we offer some different support groups for the family. We have a breast support group for women only, which meets every Wednesday evening at the Alcott Center at 7 o'clock. We also have a caregiver support group 
for other family members who are caring for women, whether it's mothers or fathers or husbands, significant others. That meets every third Thursday of the month at about 3.30. Then we also have a cancer support group for all cancers. Families, friends can come to that. That meets on Mondays from 3 to 5 o'clock, and they meet every single week. I I think that for me, in terms of taking care of the entire patient or taking care of the whole family, what becomes very important is there are several factors that go into having a diagnosis of cancer. There's the psychology of actually getting the diagnosis, and that affects um, kind of your interaction with your family. If you become depressed, if you become withdrawn, that affects more than just you. Um, It affects everyone that's around you, how you take care of your children, how you're able to care for your family. So... In, in getting a diagnosis, um, I think that everyone should be involved in taking care of that patient, not only because they will need at some point someone to help care for them if they have chemotherapy, radiation therapy, um, just in terms of having support around you, that becomes very important. The more knowledgeable that your family is, I think the better off that people end up doing. Um, and, and that family can be in terms of friends. It doesn't. It can be coworkers. It doesn't have to be your immediate family or husband or a child unit. Um, it can be anyone who would help take care of you. Um, that becomes very important for me um, in terms of education because as you give a diagnosis or every person that becomes involved, that's another extension for someone that can spread information about getting early mammograms, having your screening done. What do you look for if, if things go wrong? And so. I think that it's important to make sure that everyone's involved in that process because during that process, every person needs help. Um, People think that they can kind of take care of this all alone or that it's okay to be quiet about it and, and not get their family involved when, in fact, your family actually really does want to help. They want to be there for you. They want to support you. And so if you get them involved and get them involved early, I think that it makes it uh, all around an excellent experience for everyone involved, including your children. I know that there are several support groups also for children because it becomes a very confusing issue when mom or dad is diagnosed with cancer. So every city, I'm sure, has an avenue for the explanation of what's going on and also people to talk to your children if you're not able to do it yourself to explain things in a way that they would understand. Um, And things to get involved is looking up on the Susan G. Common website. You can go to your American Cancer Society, Little Red Door Societies. In every area, they will have all of those things available for for every cancer, actually. Also unique to Indiana University is a student-run camp for children whose parents have or have had cancer, and that's Camp Kesem. And they've provided that for the last three years. And I've been on the advisory board for that. And I'm so impressed with the IU students who basically run this camp. They organize. They do all of the fundraising for it. And it's a wonderful opportunity. The very first year I was uh, lucky enough to be camp nurse at Camp Kesem, we had uh, 14 uh, kids who attended ages I think the youngest was six and the oldest was 13. This past year, they had over 40 attend camp. And um, it started out in California and now has gone to about 12 different campuses across the country. Hmm, That's really wonderful. And what do they get get out of this camp? What kind of things happen? Um, The students usually are dropped off on Sunday, and there's a lot of activities. Those kids are kept pretty active, a lot of physical activity, a lot of drama, Um, They do all kinds of craft projects. It's usually held at a camp where there are nature walks. There are different kinds of physical challenges, whether it's a rope climb or walking across a very thin board, sometimes canoeing. So they're kept very active, but they're also given time in the evening, what is called cabin chat, where they can talk about their day and what they have done. And inevitably, the conversation turns back to cancer. Uh, The counselors don't initiate that conversation, but often the kids do themselves, and it gives them the opportunity to realize they're not alone with dealing with a parent who has cancer. How do these IU students find out about this and get involved in this? Well, there should be flyers all over campus. Um, There is also a website, campkesem.org, and they can find out, and they are already doing some planning for next year's camp, which is usually the first week in August. Okay. And you're doing some kind of event tonight or tomorrow, aren't you, in connection with this? Tonight is the Midwest Conference for Camp Kesem. Um, 
the local students at Indiana University are actually hosting several different universities, bringing students in to learn more about it, to develop the camp in their, in their, on their campus. And we'll be meeting in Zionsville tonight. Okay. Spreading the word and mm-hmm. evangelizing, as it were. To... <laughs> All righty. We're about halfway uh, through the hour here. We're uh, talking about uh, breast cancer. Uh, research, cure, treatment, all aspects of uh, breast cancer and research into that uh, disease. Our guests are Dr. Monet Bowling of Indianapolis and uh, Janice Ross from right here in Bloomington. If you'd like to uh, join the program, we hope you will. Give us a call, 855-0811. Toll-free outside the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. But right now, time to take a break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU invites you to our annual listener reception, a chance to mingle with fellow listeners and meet the cast and crew of WFIU en route to evening activities. Light refreshment provided by Terry's Banquets and Catering, Upland Brewery, and Oliver Winery. WFIU's listener reception takes place on Friday, October 12th from 7 to 9 in the atrium at the IU Art Museum. More at WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Will Murphy filling in this afternoon for Bob Zaltzberg and also for Mary Catherine Carmichael. Both of them need to be away from the microphone this afternoon, but they will be back next week. We are talking about breast cancer this afternoon, and our two guests include Dr. Monet Bowling of uh, Indianapolis, and uh, Janice Ross, a nurse, a cancer nurse here at uh, the Olcott Center in Bloomington. If you'd like to join the conversation, please do so. The number is 855-0811. Toll free if you have a comment or question, 877-285-9348. And the email address if you'd like to send us a comment or question that way is noon at indiana.edu. Now, before we took the break, Andy had called in and, and asked about when his wife should come in and, and um, get a mammogram. Um, and the screening. Uh, but we didn't really talk about how often those sorts of screenings, those mammograms should take place. Maybe we can start uh, again by by uh, addressing that question. So again, I will talk about um, screening mammograms should begin at the age of 40 mm-hmm. um, unless there is a diagnosis of breast cancer in a patient who is younger than the age of 40 within your immediate family. Um, and those need to ha- happen every year. Um, it needs to be an annual screening mammogram um, that occurs every year. And that can happen in conjunction with a breast exam performed by a medical professional. And I would like to mention that a breast exam um, by a medical professional includes having your shirt removed. And the reason I say that is because it's very important. People go to their physicians and actually have a breast exam and no one actually took their shirt off or didn't take their bra off. And so what I want to make sure everyone understands is that someone needs to actually feel your skin, look at your breast, look as it as it moves on your chest wall. And that's very important. Um, a full breast exam includes, includes an exam that occurs with, with your clothing off. Um, the other thing that I want to make sure I mention is about self-breast exams. Um, the first thing that I tell my patients who have benign breast disease or a diagnosis of cancer is that usually they are the first person that's going to notice that anything is wrong with their breast, whether it be pain, their skin looks a little bit abnormal, the size is different. I can't see what you're doing at home. And so I would like to stress the importance of doing a self-breast exam. Um, those should happen on a monthly basis. Um, if you are having uh, cycles every month, then that needs to happen two weeks after your cycle has ended um, and should happen when your body is slightly moistened or after you get out of the shower, not with soap. You don't want to slide all around while you're doing your breast exam. You want to make sure that you're doing it um, with your arm uh, up above your head to stretch your tissue out against your chest wall. 
and that you have kind of three fingers uh, that are flat against the chest that can move around either in a circular motion and an up and down pattern so that you cover the entire breast and chest wall area, including up towards your um, armpit or your axilla, which is what we would call it, um, but performing that on a monthly basis. And for women that are not having cycles, pick a day that you like every month and do it at that exact same time. The reason that that becomes important is because there are hormonal changes that can happen with the body. And so as you pick the same time, your breasts will feel the same way every single month. And you'll notice slight differences. I've had patients that have come in that said, you know, I just have this pain or I felt something that was less than the size of a pea. And it turned out to be something, um, whether that was benign or malignant, it actually turned out to be something that needed to be evaluated. So you need to perform these exams at home. I think it's very important to stress getting your yearly mammogram and also having those, uh, having the self-breast exam happen at home. It's interesting that in Indiana state law, it's coded that high school health classes need to offer instruction on breast self-exam and testicular self-exam. And at the Alcott Center, we send out letters to local schools. And last year, we went into 15 different classes and taught uh, the students in those classes breast self-exam. So they would start knowing how to exactly do that. And we follow exactly what Dr. Bowling talked about, exactly that way of doing an exam. All right. We uh, have another caller on the line. Let's go to Rose. Hi, Rose. Um, yeah, hi. I'm uh, uh, postmenopausal, and unfortunately, due to severe symptoms, primarily hot flashes that keep me awake around the clock, I have been on hormone replacement therapy for a number of years and have switched to these conjugated phytoestrogens. And I guess, first of all, I'd like to know, is there any evidence that those have a lower risk of uh, breast cancer? And then an added question, what other things that are within one's control, in other words, not genetic predisposition, can a person do to try to prevent breast cancer in the way of diet or lifestyle or so forth? All right. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate the question. Yes. Conjugated phyto... I, I, can't, I don't know this terminology, but perhaps you can speak to uh, uh, a little bit of preventative uh, uh, approaches to, to uh, um, lifestyle changes and and some of the some of the uh, treatments that she's taking for other things. Um, I think that what is important for Rose, I'm not exactly sure about the phytoestrogens, but um, in terms of lifestyle, let's ad- address one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Lifestyle issues and and questions. Um, Exercise becomes extremely important, and I cannot stress enough how important exercise is. And we're talking about 20 to 30 minutes of exercise that occurs two to three times per week in terms of lowering your risk for the development of cancer. Exercise has been found to be very important. Um, I think in terms of research and development, there are several um, ways to look at foods that may contribute to lowering your hormonal load that you have in your body, but nothing has been listed specifically in terms of being able to lower uh, the amount of hormones that you have in your body. So that's an area of ongoing research. Um, In terms of taking estrogens, um, for hot flashes. Um, luckily, uh, there are some newer things that have become available on the market in terms of pharmacologic agents. Um, and I don't know if I'm allowed to list them specifically, but um, there are some. Uh, one drug in particular is called Lexapro. Um, and we probably should just pause to say yeah. you're not offering any sort of prescription or advice. Here. I you're have no affiliation with this drug. I am not on any board or advisory. I'm right. just speaking from <laughs> my own experience. Right. But there are several medications that... Um, can help with hot flashes. Now, they don't work as well as the estrogens. I do have to tell people that. But when I'm looking at the risk for the development of of breast cancer versus someone who is at high risk, um, I do recommend that they come off the estrogens unless it's debilitating. And for Rose's situation, it actually sounds like she's having debilitating, can't function throughout the day in terms of of her hot flashes. What I would suggest is going to your medical professional, your OBGYN or a um, breast cancer specialist, um, medical oncologist that could talk to you about other alternatives in terms of medications that would be available to you to try to wean yourself, not yourself, but help you wean off of those medications and then start on one of these newer um, uh, drugs. The the phytoestrogens and conjugated versus non-conjugated um, estrogens, um, it becomes very difficult. And I think that 
you, one has to weigh the the risk um, with any of these drugs that are on the market and any herbal products um, that are that are out there. You have to, and herbal products are a, a way that you can activate your estrogens in your body or activate uh, hormones in your body. So if you're taking herbal supplements, it becomes very important that you tell your doctor about that because if you're at high risk for the development of breast cancer, herbal supplements can can augment that or speed speed that development of cancer up. So you need to be very careful about taking herbal therapies and make sure that you disclose that information to your healthcare provider. Um, but you have to weigh your risk for the development of cancer and taking those estrogens. Is it absolutely necessary? Can you wean them to a lower dose and still make it if you have one or two hot flashes a day? But Rose, that was an excellent question. In terms of lifestyle, I actually tell people the exercising would be the number one thing on, on my on my list that I would tell people. The way that you can help yourself immediately would be to start an exercise program. Anything you want to add to this, Janice? I think she's got that covered with the estrogen. Um, we do know that there are women who have some really profound difficulties with night sweats and having difficulty with getting enough sleep so that they are really having difficulty during the day doing normal activities. And Rose may be one of those people that really needs the benefit of having those the hormone replacement therapy. Okay. Could I just ask, I'm curious, why is exercise so instrumental in, uh, in being a preventative uh, strategy? Well, as you look at the body, um, one of the things that is kind of held in your adipose tissue are your hormone receptors. And um, what becomes very important is decreasing your body's exposure to those hormones. The more fat cells you have, the more receptors you have, and the more your body's going to be exposed um, to to those uh, hormones. And so what becomes important is decreasing that amount of fat that you have in your body. You decrease the amount of receptors. So exercising, not only is it good for your heart, which is very important <laughs> for um, people to be aware of their cardiovascular risks, but um, it is also very good in decreasing the amount of adipose you have in your body, decreasing your hormone receptors and your body's exposure to estrogens. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about the... Uh, uh, various risk factors. You've talked about the physical condition. We've talked about a certain genetic predisposition. But we always hear about how Hoosiers, just as a class, or a group of overweight, cigarette smoking, alcohol drinking, uh, Crisco-loving individuals who don't have the healthiest lifestyles. Um, what kind of lifestyle changes should folks be making to preclude the likelihood, aside from the exercise, as you say, um, to, to minimize the risk factors? Um, starting off, uh, I guess exercise would be top of my list. Um, in terms of cardiovascular health, I would just agree that all smoking should stop, but that would be a personal bias on, on my part in terms of looking at heart health and lung health um, in terms of the development of cancer because it's very difficult to treat lung cancer, so um, stopping the smoking. But in terms of risk factors for the development of breast cancer, things that I tell people that they should know is age becomes the number one kind of predictor for development of breast cancer. The number of biopsies that you've had in the past, um, any type of breast biopsy, whether that be benign or malignant breast biopsy, the number of those, as you increase in number, you become placed in a higher risk category because that kind of shows us that your breast is kind of metabolically active. It's doing things that are not quite normal if you show up with a mammogram every year that has an abnormality. The number of uh, family members that you have, first-degree relatives that have a um, diagnosis of breast or ovarian cancer. What becomes very important is not forgetting that ovarian cancer and breast cancer are actually, um, in some aspects, linked genetically. Um, and so it's very important to look at your family's predisposition for the development of ovarian and breast cancer. Um, other um, risk factors would be uh, taking hormone replacement therapies, how long you've been on those hormone replacement therapies, your amount of exercise that you perform. There are several risk factors in terms of environmental things that have happened. If you've received mantle radiation or radiation to the chest in the past, those people that receive radiation for um, thyroid cancer or some, something that was going on in their chest cavity, they're at a higher risk for the development of breast cancer also. Okay. Uh, and you may have just spoken to, to a question. We've gotten a couple of emails here, and one of them says, Terry Gross's interview yesterday on Fresh Air was Deborah Davis, author of The Secret History of the War on Cancer. 
Environmental health expert Deborah Davis uh, spoke on the air in the interview about the possibility that mammograms may often be administered too early to many young, younger women. This person writes, uh, if I heard correctly, the basis for the statement is that exposure to unnecessary radiation may register more of a risk than the less likely occurrence of breast cancer at an early age. Would you please comment about this risk assessment of exposure to radiation versus that of breast cancer in premenopausal women? Does the advice you administer about post-age 40 administration of mammogram take this concern about uh, Dr. Davis's book into account? Janice, can you feel that for us? Well, the key word there is unnecessary radiation that is received by a woman. In most women who are premenopausal, um, especially the younger they are, the more dense their breast Absolutely. is, the more difficult it is for a mammogram uh, to look through that breast tissue. So in those women, it would probably be more appropriate if there is a suspicious area to do an ultrasound. That's simply bouncing sound waves through that tissue and seeing what kind of echo comes back if there's any kind of abnormality. So for those women with, that are very young with dense breasts, that is a, a safer and actually a more effective way to take a look at that breast tissue. Um, we really don't know exactly um, women who are getting mammograms on a yearly basis that it would be causing any kind of cancer 20 years from now. But that what we're looking at is the word they're unnecessary. We do know that there is an increased risk for women, like Dr. Bowling said, who receive radiation to the chest area from, for instance, Hodgkin's disease or thyroid. But we have not really seen women developing breast cancer from having mammograms done. Okay. All righty. Thank you for that. Another person writes in and says, I understand that mammograms of women who are breastfeeding are hard to read. Could you please advise what the options are for those who are at the appropriate age for a mammogram but are still breastfeeding? I think that becomes very important. Um, and again, Janice hit, hit the nail on the head. We need to um, think about – sorry. Um, I think Janice really addressed that question in terms of ultrasounds. If you find that you're breastfeeding and you have an abnormality, um, you need to be seen immediately. I think one of the major problems with women that are breastfeeding is they think they have an infection. Um, they automatically kind of chalk this up to I'm young, I'm breastfeeding, I've developed a mastitis or some kind of redness or some type of infection in the breast. And what they do is they kind of wait or they go, they get antibiotics, they stay on antibiotics for months, and something more uh, important was going on in terms of the development of cancer. Um, uh, so ultrasounds are very important. If you find that you're breastfeeding and you're having a problem and you're not able to get a good mammogram, your uh, radiologist will be able to assess that. If your breasts are too dense to be able to see through that tissue or if there's a problem being able to read your mammogram, one, there are several ways to magnify the view uh, of that mammogram. And then also um, what becomes available is that people can also get ultrasounds and if necessary, an MRI of the breast that that can happen to be able to get a better look of what's going on with the architecture of the breast. Okay. Anything to add there, Janice? Nope. I think she's got it covered. <laughs> okay. I did want, before we uh, wrap up the program here, we've got about another 10 minutes or so if folks want to call in or drop in a couple more emails. Uh, I wanted to just get a sense of your history, your observation of treatment, diagnosis, and that sort of thing. You started this doing this uh, line of work 27 years ago. How have things changed in that intervening, uh, I don't mean to be rude by saying this, but almost three decades? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it actually went by pretty darn fast. Um, I think the thing that I have seen the, the largest change with has been treatments, has been also the options that are available for women now that were not available 30 years ago. Um, with every woman, there are so many different factors that go into the decision of what kind of treatment is offered to that woman. I often tell women you get designer treatment. We can have 10 women around the table at support group who all have breast cancer, and they all receive slightly different treatment. And um, there are so many factors that have to do with the tumor size, with um, the grading of the tumor itself, whether lymph nodes are I'm involved. Sorry, what does that mean, the grading of the tumor? Grading takes a look at the actual cancer cells themselves. It almost takes a look at how aggressive they look like they're growing. How much do they still look like the parent tissue? Um, and we also take a look at their hormone receptor status. So when we tell women they get designer treatment, that's very true. With every woman, it's, it's very specific to her, her tumor, to her cancer, and it's her treatment. Um, what I've also seen is that the side effects to breast cancer are much more tolerable. It's still not easy 
It's a rough treatment. It really is. But some of the new nausea medicines have really made a big difference in women's lives, giving them a better quality of life while they're going through treatment. Now, you've been in this field uh, a, a bit less. Uh, a bit. <laughs> um, but how have things just in that brief time? I assume there's been uh, quite a bit. It seems to me as a, as a layperson, there's been quite a bit more public awareness of the problem and how it's addressed. Um, definitely more public awareness. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to programs like the Susan G. Komen uh, uh, Foundation. Um, but in my short amount of time that I have actually been a surgeon and, and, and a doctor, I think that we've made advances in terms of the surgical options for patients. Um, less than 10 years ago, every, I mean, I can think of patients, every woman had a mastectomy. Every woman had um, the lymph nodes removed from beneath her arm as the standard of care. Um, I think that now we've come into an era where people try to tailor towards a, a less aggressive uh, surgical treatment. So you have options um, for taking out the mass and kind of a normal rim of tissue around it, which is what we would call a partial mastectomy or or lumpectomy. Those two words mean the exact same thing, a partial mastectomy versus a lumpectomy. And then in terms of assessing whether or not they have metastatic disease in their axilla, doing sentinel lymph node biopsies. And what that has done is saved women the the need for a complete axillary lymph node dissection or removal of, of two-thirds of their lymph nodes. They can get two or three lymph nodes removed have those looked at by a pathologist and decide if you have metastatic disease in those lymph nodes immediately. What that does is um, what we've seen is kind of the, the lesser approach of taking care of the breast cancer, the least amount of surgery that's performed, people are able to have breast conservation therapy. So they're able to preserve their breast. Um, they are able to keep the contour of their breast if that's what they decide to do. You're able to have less risk of development of lymphedema by performing a sentinel lymph node biopsy versus doing a full axillary lymph node dissection. So surgically and medically, I would agree with Janice, the, the therapy for the treatment of patients has has been amazing. It's designed per patient, per cancer, for everything that they have going on with their tumor. Um, and the drugs are are different, and you can have five people sit around, and every one of them is on a different regimen, and all of those regimens can be seen as being equivalent. Um, they are tailor-made per patient, and you get the same type of care with 15 different drugs, and that combination is assessed adequately by medical oncologists who have just grown leaps and bounds um, in terms of taking care of breast cancer patients. I think that that has changed within my short career um, of how we take care of patients surgically and then how they're treated medically or with radiation even. It seems to me that that uh, when I was growing up, I can recall that, that uh, when women were faced with a diagnosis of breast cancer, a significant component of treatment and uh, addressing the disease was self-image that somehow they felt radically altered, um, their identity as women was changed somehow. Is that still a prevalent problem? It definitely is, and it's very individual with every single woman. And one of the ways that we try to address that and support those women is we have a buddy system here locally where we have women who have been through breast treatment, whether it's radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, who are willing to sit and talk with another woman. We also have certified prosthesis fitters here in Monroe County, beautiful creations, where they help women who have had mastectomies, fit them with mastectomy bras, they have swimsuits, and they also have the breast prosthesis just to help out a little bit with that that self-image for each of these women. I think one of the largest uh, changes that have happened in the care of breast cancer patients um, or people with breast disease is that we now are treating patients as a multidisciplinary team. Um, in terms of how the patient is cared for, you have a surgical oncologist that will take care of the surgery. You have a medical oncologist that will take care of chemotherapy or hormonal therapy, radiation oncologist that performs radiation or decides whether you need it or not. You have a genetics team that is uh, filled with counselors and pe uh, medical doctors who are geneticists who assess your risk and if you need to be tested for a genetic predisposition for um, the development of cancer. And then psychology, um, psychologists and psychiatrists that are readily available. And what they do is 
look at those self-image problems and and assess whether someone needs more than just a, a support group. If, if it's more than that, if they're stricken and kind of life altered and can't move forward, what, what do we do to help that person move forward? So the multidisciplinary approach has completely revolutionized the way that patients are cared for. It's, it's done as a team approach with seven or eight medical professionals who all discuss probably on a weekly basis what's going on with that patient. And I know that I'm sure that that's the way that it's done here, but in Indianapolis, that's exactly how we take care of our patients. Every patient is seen by one member of the team. And that happens. So you see five doctors and all, you know, including the radiologists who are very important because they actually look at the films first. But in terms of how the patients are taken care of, it's just amazing that you get that personalized care from several groups of of doctors. Locally, we have a team that meets weekly and uh, there are usually about 20 people who attend and all of the new cancer cases are presented. And we include pathology, our cancer registry, our research, investigational review board, personnel is there. We have many different people that are also there besides the oncologist, radiation oncologist, uh, radiology is there. We have a plastic surgeon that also attends. So like Dr. Bowling said, we have a multidisciplinary approach to every single patient. Okay. There are so many topics uh, of our discussion that we haven't gotten to. Uh, we could probably spend an entire hour on the ramifications of life sciences uh, on the treatment and cure. I mean, when you talk about race-free cure, that's got to be an important component of the discussion, I would think, and we haven't gotten there. We have about 50 seconds left, and I want to use that time <laughs> instead of getting into life sciences, talking about just information that you direct people to. How do they get information? Where should they go? For... Uh, uh, whether they want to find out more information about treatment or uh, about these events. Can you suggest some phone numbers, some agencies, some web addresses? Oh, right here locally, they can get a hold of us at the Alcott Center. We try to be the resource for the entire community on anything that they might have questions about cancer. Our number here locally is 353-5669, or they can find us on the web at bloomingtonhospital.org. In, in terms of Indianapolis or, or the greater Indianapolis area, um, the Simmons Cancer Center is where I am based out of, but where the cancer, the breast cancer center is. Um, and that number for that cancer center, I think, is 317-274-9800. Um, and your calls or questions can be directed anywhere. And also the um, IU website, the www.iu.edu or .org that any one of these areas can be evaluated and looked up in terms of departments for people to to reach anyone talking about breast cancer. Okay. And we'll remind our listeners as we head out that we've got the uh, Race for the Cure going on in Terre Haute tomorrow and also the uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Walk here in Bloomington. And we're going to have to adjourn on that note. My thanks to uh, Janice Ross of the Olcott Center and also to uh, Dr. Monet Bowling for joining us all the way from Indianapolis this afternoon. Thank you both very much. Thank you very Thank much. You. Hope you'll join us next week for Noon Edition. On behalf of producer Catherine Hageman, engineer Mike Pashkash, and missing uh, hosts Catherine, uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael and Bob Salzberg, I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.